Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parables, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Danny Aiken in his commentary uh, on Mark wrote, the basic problem of fallen humanity is not what we do, but who we are. Years ago when I was a kid, my mom began to experience some abdominal pain that progressively grew worse and worse. And it was something that she went to the doctor for multiple times. And there was just this this usual sense of examinations and battery of tests. And there were these just routine things that, that you always seem to do when you go to the doctor. And they, for some reason, just could not find what was causing her pain. And this was frustrating for her because she knew something was wrong, but she couldn't identify what it was. And my mom would say, you know, not knowing is the worst part. Because because if I knew, then I at least know what I needed to do, or at least I would understand what, what I'm up against. And that way, I wouldn't have to just continue to, to wonder what's going on with me. And I think many of us have experienced this before in our own lives. We have... Or at least we've we've experienced this through through loved ones, people who've gotten sick, and there's the you know the fatigue um, that just won't go away, right? And the pain that just continues to get worse. And then you begin to go and ask for help, and you go through the routine things and go to the doctor, and it's is it this or is it that or or pop, perhaps it's this condition and. How about you take this medication for a couple of weeks and see if that clears it up? And if that doesn't work, you're going to take that medication. And then we're going to take this combination of medications. And it goes on and on and on. But it doesn't get any better. But instead, things begin to get worse. And the pain increases and the symptoms increase. And the anxieties begin to increase. And there comes this point where people with hard-to-diagnose chronic illnesses will say, I just want to know what the problem is. One way or the other, I just want to know what to do. Right, and, and and that's the place where where people get to, you know, is they just want to know the diagnosis because once you understand the diagnosis, you know what the problem is, and once you know what the problem is, then you can find what the solution is if there is a solution. And oftentimes, when it comes to medical issues, there's not a solution. So my mom, she was very frustrated, and and she knew something was wrong, but after many doctor visits, she still didn't know what was going on, and finally. One particular doctor visit, she was getting upset with the doctor because because he didn't seem to be taking her very seriously. And he was getting very upset with her because she was getting upset with him. And out of his frustration, he said to her that her problems were psychosomatic. Or in other words, her problems were in her head, which which made my mom cry. 
right? And she comes out of the waiting area, you know, into the waiting area to, to, to where my dad was and doing her best to kind of hide the fact that she was crying, but he could see that she was crying and he was wondering, why are you crying? And so she tells my dad, my doctor said this is in, in my head, to which my doctor stands up and goes behind the counter and he proceeded to try to have a personal conversation with the, the doctor who knew that it was probably a really good idea to go find a room to lock himself in uh, because telling my mom her problems are in her, her head was not, a, was not a good idea. And so he proceeds then from the locked room to call the, the front desk and give instructions to the receptionist to give my mom a referral to Samsung Clinic in Santa Barbara for further testing. To which my parents drove, you know, and, and checked in. And the doctors there at Samsung Clinic, um, they did a comprehensive examination of my mom and ran all the tests that you could possibly run. And then shortly after that, they admitted her into the hospital because they had to have, she had to have a, an emergency hysterectomy because my mom was diagnosed with uterine cancer. So fortunately, they caught it in time where we're, we're to successfully, you know, able to treat what was going on with her. But, but the point is, knowing the diagnosis helps you to understand what the problem is, in which, which helps you to understand to, what to do about it. And this is exactly, you know, the point here in Mark. Jesus, the great physician, is coming to his people, you know, and explaining to them very clearly, right, this is the diagnosis of your life. I hope you understand that. Like this right here, this text that we're looking at this morning is, is your diagnosis. This text right here is my diagnosis. This text right here is the diagnosis of every person who's ever lived and ever will live. You want to know what's wrong with people? This right here explains what's wrong with people. This right here is the diagnosis of our real problem and, and, and where our troubles begin and end. This is the diagnosis of why we do the things that we do. In fact, this is the answer that the whole world is looking for when marriages fall apart. This is the answer that the whole world looks for when there's another mass shooting, because that's what happens. People say, why does this happen? How come this happens? And there's all of these answers that people throw out here. This is the reason why. This is the answer that the whole world looks for when, dad, when, a, when a dad punches a five-year-old child to death because the kid wouldn't stop eating his Father's Day cake. This is the answer that the world's looking for when it comes to addiction and betrayal and gossip and greed and bitterness. This text is the diagnosis of why we do the things that we do. And to deny the diagnosis and to deny the word of God is to deny the problem at all. And then it is also to forfeit the hope of finding the solution. This text is the diagnosis of what's really wrong with us. But understand, this is not only the diagnosis, but it also points us to the real solution. It helps us to understand why the solution to our problem had to be such a radical solution. This helps us to understand the question of why Jesus had to die. Because I don't know if you've ever even really thought about this, but, but why? Have you ever really considered that? Why did Jesus have to die? I, I mean, consider this. God, the Son, came into the world took on a full human nature to identify himself with us. And he experienced what it was like to be born and, and to be hungry and tired. And he experienced grief and pain and betrayal. And he walked in our shoes. Why? But more than that, he lived a perfect life fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law that we ourselves could not fulfill. 
And then he left for us an example of what it truly means to love our neighbor. And then he is arrested and tortured and nailed on a Roman cross where he hangs for hours, suffocating under his own weight in the sun. And on that cross, he takes upon himself your sin and bears in his body the awful and terrible wrath of a holy and righteous God, God the Father, that you and I deserve and died on that cross, which is perhaps one of the most gruesome ways to be killed, and then was laid in a tomb. And three days later, was physically resurrected to new life. And 40 days later, ascended into heaven, where he is now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for those who trust in him. And he did all of that. Every bit of that was required in order to pay for your sins so that you could be saved. That right there should give you a clue to the significance of this diagnosis, because, because a radical treatment is for a radical problem. I mean, you don't treat a splinter with radiation and chemotherapy. Do you? You don't have to have a, a limb amputated for a blister. You, you understand that? The solution to the problem gives you an indication to the severity of the problem. Jesus did all he did because of the severity of our problem. But let me, because, because let, me rem, let me just tell you something here. If there was another way for, us, for, for God to solve this problem, it would have been done another way. If there was a way for Jesus to be rescued without him having to die and take your pain and suffer, you know, and take your sin and your punishment, it would have been done another way. In fact, Jesus, the night before he died, he prayed to God the Father and asked, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, as, not as I will, but as you will. Do you hear that? Let this cup pass from me. It's possible. If there's any other way that this can be done, then let it be done. If there's another way, then let it be done because I don't want to have to do this, but not as I will, but your will. If Jesus could have forgiven you simply by coming down here and saying, you're forgiven, it would have been done that way. But it wasn't. You see, the reason why Jesus came to the earth and did what he did is because he, he, because as he tells us in this text, the heart of the issue is a heart issue. You see, Jesus didn't come to clean up your behavior. You understand that he didn't come to, to, to clean up your behavior. I mean, if, if that was the case, that would be easy because all he would have to do is just come down here and give you some more rules to live by. Which, by the way, was what the Pharisees were really good at. They lived by the rules. In fact, they were so intent to live by the rules that they had rules to help them keep the rules. And the Pharisees were known for their discipline and their ability to keep the smallest detail of the law. They were known for their, for their morality and their, and their moral upstandingness in the community. If keeping the rules was a ticket, they would have been, it would have been easy for them. And so if it was about behavior, Jesus was just simply would have given you another list of do's and don'ts and said, if you follow these rules, you're going to be good. If changing behavior was the solution, all we would have to do is learn to be like the Pharisees. But as we saw in the last message, that was not the solution at all. And Jesus came into the world and did what he did, not to change your behavior. He came to change your heart because the heart is the issue. 
And that's what this text is all about right here. Jesus giving us a clear diagnosis, right? And a prelude of why he had to come. Because ultimately, your problem isn't out there. It's in here. And that's what we're going to look at in this text here. So turn with me to Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. And again, before we get into the text, let's just understand what the context is because it's important for us to, to, to understand what's happening here. Jesus had done increasingly incredible miracles like feeding 5,000 people with a couple of tortillas and some sardines. And then Jesus walks on water and, claim, you know, and calms another storm. And his disciples, you know, are beginning to finally see who Jesus really is. I mean, they, they, they know that there's something special about him, but now they're beginning to see the picture, the bigger picture. And then Jesus, when him and his disciples get to shore, they're immediately met with people. And everywhere they go, in every city, in every town, in every country, village, everywhere they go, people are, are lining up to, to be ministered to. They're, they're putting people in the marketplace just so they could touch the hem of his garment and be healed. And everywhere he, he goes, right, Everywhere he goes, they're just flocking to him, and they barely have any time to eat, right? And so when they do eat, when they get a moment to eat, the Pharisees are there to condemn them because guess what? The, because the disciples aren't washing their hands before they ate. Because the Pharisees saw this as a big deal, as we talked about in the last message. Because the Pharisees believed with all their heart that the, 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 their problem and the problem of humanity and the problem of sinners is something outside of them. That they believed that it was about your behavior. It was about what you did. They believed that if a person didn't follow the rules and they became defiled or unclean, they became at odds with God. They believed that what you do externally, it was what makes you a sinner. And that would include things like working on the Sabbath and, and eating with unclean hands. They believe a person literally became God's enemy by, by what they ate or in the manner in which they would eat. They believed that eating with unwashed hands defiled a person the same way committing adultery would. And so they, so they bring this up to Jesus in an effort to prove that he couldn't really possibly be the Messiah because, I mean, naturally the Messiah would, would make sure that, that, that everybody follows the rules. But then Jesus turns around and he calls them hypocrites. Because they and their incessant rule-keeping created these man-made traditions that actually got in the way of them truly being obedient to God. And in effect, he, he labels these religious people false believers. That's what he says. They're false believers. And they teach false doctrine and they give false worship to God. Because they... These self-righteous men are nothing but hypocritical legalists because they think they can be right with God. They think it's about external behavior. They believe that being right with God is about what you do. And that is the background of what Jesus has to say next. And he called these people to him. It says, and he said to them, hear me all of you and understand. So this right here, this is an expression. I want you to pay attention here. This is an expression of Jesus calling people to hear and understand. This is a prophetic announcement. Jesus saying these things would have drawn his audience to, to mind of the Old Testament prophets. Because this right here is Jesus essentially saying, hear and understand. Because, because he's about to give a, a word from God himself. And then he says... There is nothing outside of a person that by going in to him can defile him. 
but the things that come out of a person or what defile him. Jesus says there's nothing that a person can take from the outside and bring into himself. Be it the wrong kind of food or dirt from unclean hands that make a person unclean or defiled or, or specifically at odds with God. Now Jesus is obviously, right, he's talking about eating in this context, but he means a whole lot more, right, than that because in just a few verses he's going to talk about what defiles a person and what defiles a person makes them at odds with God and he's going to list a bunch of sins and evil thoughts and evil deeds like sexual morality have nothing to do with eating. And so what Jesus means here ultimately is what defiles you, what makes you clean, what sets you at odds with God, what makes you his enemy and brings you under his wrath and condemnation Condemnation is not something external, it is internal. Our greatest problem is not external, it is not out there. And this is important because because you go and talk to just about anyone, including Christians, and you will, when you talk to them about what's wrong with people, they will begin to give you all kinds of external reasons of why what people, what's wrong with people. They will give you all kinds of external reasonings and, and circumstances. In fact, a lot of people believe that the greatest problem is your upbringing. They believe that what you do, you do the things you do because you were taught to do them. One of the most popular memes on social media is this picture of a clearly white child and a clearly dark-skinned child hugging each other. And the caption says, no one is born a racist, to which everyone would say, oh, that's right. right? Now understand, right? our upbringing does influence those things. Right? But that is not the reason for racism. People believe this assumption that it's about your upbringing, which fundamentally misses the point. Now, again, don't get me wrong, right? Yes, your upbringing influences these kinds of things. It influences your behavior and certainly can teach you, teach you beliefs that are false. But understand, racism at its core is just not something that's taught. At its core, it's hatred. At its core is injustice. At its core, it's violence. And you don't have to teach a kid to hate. And you don't have to teach a kid to be violent. You don't have to teach a kid to be unjust. You don't. They already know how to do that. I mean, think about this. If you already have kids, you actually know this. Kids already know how to be selfish. They know how to be hateful and mean and violent on their own. Just put a couple of little kids in a room together with some toys and let them start taking toys from each other and see what happens. They already know what to do. They already know how to bite and poke and scream. In fact, one time when I was at home with the kids by myself um, watching a football game and, and my youngest daughters come in and they were, they, were, they were coming in the living room interrupting the game saying, Dad, Dad, Carson poked me in the eye. And I was like, what are you talking about? And about the third or fourth time they came in here, I was like, okay, I better go check and see what, what they're doing back here. Now, now, I go into this room, and I kind of like just quietly sneak in to see what's happening, and I hear this commotion, and these kids are kind of screaming at each other, and I see Carson, he's, got, he's backed into a corner, he's got this toy in his arm, right, and he's got his little hand up, right, and every time they get close enough, because they, what they want is they want the toy, they want to take it from him, and he's standing there back there, right, and as soon as they get close enough within range, he takes his finger and he pokes them right in the eye. One after the next, that's right. Now understand, 
I didn't have to teach them to take things from him. And I didn't have to teach him how to poke them in the eye. He figured that out on his own. Kids already know how to be violent. They already know how to be selfish. In fact, Bodhi Bauckham says that God made little kid, you know, kids little because they won't kill it, that way they won't kill us in our sleep because they already know how to hate and be violent. He also said they made them cute, that God made them cute so that we won't kill them. <laughs> kids already know how to be violent. They already know how to lie. They already know how to be sneaky and selfish. They already know how to hate. It's just who they are. So it's not just their upbringing. Other people think that our problem is the product of our environment. We do the things that we do because our environment that we're in. And because, you know, and because of that, people think poverty is an external factor that drives people to do what they do. Right? They would say things like, you, you would do the same thing if you were poor like them. Well, the reason why that they do drugs and the reason why they steal and the reason why they do the things that they do and, and don't take care of their kids because they're poor. Well, that's what we hear, right? But the problem is poverty. We just need to throw more money at them. But it really misses the point, right? Or it's, 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 it's your education or their lack of education, right? That's the problem. They're just not educated enough. In fact, most people think that the solution to all of our problems is either more education or more legislation, Right? That's, that's most people's view. In fact, that's the government's view and culture's view. That's how they approach almost all the problems. I don't know if you realize it or not, but when something happens, whether it's a mass shooting or some other type of tragedy or you know, somebody who, you know, the, like the Me Too movement with, with sexual harassment and all these other things, they say, what do they call for? They call for more education to train people to, to stop doing bad things, right? And they call for more laws to be made that require for people to be punished who do those bad things and require people to take action that are good. That's the solution that most people believe in. It's either education or legislation. And, and what the problem is, is we're the most educated and, and, and legislated society in history, but we still face all the same problems. Now understand, these things are not bad. Right? I think education is good. Legislation and laws are good. But if we start with the assumption that that's, that that's going to address the core of the issue, we're never, ever going to get there. The problem is not people's environment. It's not poverty or education or their peers or their culture. Those things certainly influence those things, but that's not the root of the problem. Other people, people believe that what's wrong with, with people is, is external forces. Right? And, and one of the most popular external forces that people look to as a catalyst for what caused people to do what they do is the external force of racism. Now, I want you to understand, I believe that racism exists. And racism is certainly an awful pariah in our culture. Right? But, but understand, there's this view that racism is this naturalistic force that affects everybody like gravity. Right? In fact... In our country and many churches, there's this promotion of the idea that racism is intrinsic to our culture and all cultures, whether you know it or not. And people do what they do because either they're a racist or they're victims of racism. They actually call it oppression. And they believe, right, this belief further perpetuates the idea that those who are always in the majority right, are automatically part of an oppressing class, oppressing minorities and therefore 
Anybody that's in the majority is a racist, whether they believe they are or not, whether they actually have hate in their heart or they don't, whether they actually actively are, are discriminating against people or not. You're labeled a racist because you were born into a class that is a phenomenon that's happening even in the church. And by the same token, those who are minorities are always the victims of racism because they are always oppressed. And they themselves, you know, though they may act violently and hateful and act in ways that seem to be racist, they cannot be racist because they are the minority. And by definition, since they are not powerful and oppressive, they're not racist because racism is what, oppress, what, what oppressive classes do. And, what, and this is just simply an outworking of their racist system. And this is a growing idea, even in the church. And it's not just limited to race, right? But now is being applied to things like gender and sexual identity. It's called, it's called cultural Marxism or critical race theory or intersectionality. And it's this idea of there is an oppressive class and, a, and, a, and an oppressed class and you as a person can belong to several different oppressed class. And so if you're a Hispanic female who identifies as a male in a same-sex relationship and you're an atheist, then you are the minority of all minorities and you're severely oppressed and your actions and your life are a reflection of that. And all of your troubles are really not your responsibility but are the fault of the oppressing majority, especially those who are straight, white, heterosexual males and that are Christians. Again, the world, for the world, our problem is external. It's an external force. But notice what Jesus says. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. Let me, let me just read that again. All all these things come from with, come, come from where? They come from within. And what do they do? They defile a person. They come from within and they defile a person. This is the diagnosis. The problem is not external. The problem is internal. The problem is our heart. The problem is who we are. As Danny Aiken said, the basic problem of fallen humanity is not what we do, but who we are. Do you understand that? Your problem is not out there. Your problem's in here. It's who we are. Well, then who are we? Well, we are willing rebels against a holy and righteous God. As the Apostle Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. And for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's who we are. Don't believe me? Then he further says in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Dead. In which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince, the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are by our nature children of wrath. It's our nature. It's who we are. Still not convinced? Isaiah, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. He further says, we've all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Everything that we do is still defiled. Even the best efforts that we can give to God are defiled. And he says, we, fade, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. It's who we are. I once tried to explain this to someone who said, you know, you're wrong, Sherman. You're wrong. I'm not born depraved. Right? I'm a good person. I said, how do you know that you're a good person? He goes, because I feel it in my heart. I know that I'm a good person. My heart tells me I'm a good person. Then I have to tell them what God said about the heart. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart, who we are in here is the problem. That's why Jesus says, from within, out of the heart of man come evil. Evil thoughts and evil deeds. That's the diagnosis, which means the solution to your problem is not then a matter of behavior modification. It is not about changing your behavior as some people believe. Because you can change your behavior, but that doesn't fix the problem. And we all know that. In fact, if you have kids, you especially know that. You can discipline your kids. You can spank them and ground them and threaten them to the point that they will, will stop hitting each other. But you can't make them stop hating each other. You can change your behavior by force. But changing their hearts is a whole different matter. The solution is not behavior modification. Which means the solution for us is not more rules. And we said this before. The, the Pharisees, they, they had rule keeping down to a science. And they even had rules to keep the rules. And they were very disciplined, you know, with, but, but still at odds with God. And so you and I trying to adopt a list of do's and don'ts isn't the solution. But for some reason, many people believe that it is. Even people who profess to be Christians, they think that being right with God is about not doing the wrong things and doing all the right things. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, that's just legalism. So it's not about more rules. And it's not about being more religious. And again, the Pharisees were the epitome of religious. They kept all the festivals and attended the synagogues. And, 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 and they went to the temple and gave all you know, the, the tithes. Even they tithed you know, of the herbs in their garden. Think about that. Like the herbs in their garden, they gave 10% of that to the church. Or to the, to the temple. Right. But he said that they were hypocritical false prophets. And even today, there are lots of people who are enemies of God, who are, who are very religious. Muslims pray three times a day, and they have their fasts and their pilgrimages. They're deeply religious people, but still con condemned. 
Right? What about the LDS, our friends at the LDS church? We love them, right? But they are very religious. They don't miss Sunday. They give a mandatory 10%, which is required. They're still bound, and they're bound to fulfill the service that they're called to, whatever it is. And they're so religious that their kids get up and they go to seminary every day before school to take classes. Did you know that? They're very religious. If it was about being religious, then they'd be in. But they're still lost and remain dead in their, their, their trespasses because they don't know Christ. And it's not about more effort. And I'll tell you what, this is, this is me right here. It's not about trying harder. I've always believed in trying harder, working harder. There's something in all of us that wants, that believes that we just need to try harder. We just need to do more. We just need to work at it harder. We just need to give more. We need to work harder, be nicer, more sincere. We just need to give more effort. But the thing is, you cannot change who you are by trying harder. You cannot change your nature by your own effort. I mean, you might be able to clean yourself up from the outside, like the, like the Pharisees, and you might even feel better because of the external changes. But you cannot tr- change your heart by trying harder. It's impossible. So it's not about trying harder or more effort. And it's not about being more sincere. It's not about just really believing in yourself. There's a lot of people who believe that, that it's about sincerity. That, that faith is about sincerity. Right, that you're right with God if you're really sincere with, about your beliefs. Lots of religious people are sincere but lost. Again, our LDS friends are so sincere. Some of the most sincere people I've ever met. But they're not saved. No matter how sincere they are, you can be sincerely wrong. And the same goes from our friends with the Kingdom Hall and those who, who, who go to the Jesus Name Tabernacle, which is a, which is a Unitarian church. They sincerely believe that Jesus is the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Right? They have their sincere convictions and they believe that they love God sincerely, but they're still lost all the same. So it's not about more rules or religion or effort or sincerity. Some, now some people will think that, that this right here is a harsh attitude. But do you know why these solutions cannot be any of these things that we just talked about? The reason why is those solutions, every one of them, whether it's your effort or your sincerity or, or rules or being more religious, every single one of those things begin and end with you. You realize that, right? It's all about what you can do. For some reason, within all of us, we intrinsically think that the root of our solution is, to our problem is, is in us, and it's about what we do. And so we naturally and instinctively try to save ourselves. So we always begin with, our, we begin with us, whether we realize it or not. That's why we always think it's about rules and working harder and doing stuff. But that's why this diagnosis is so important. It helps us to see that it can't be us. We can't save ourselves. That's why we have to understand this. Because unless you understand what the problem is, you will never understand and accept the solution. You will do what billions of people are trying to do currently right now, which is to save yourself. Did you know that every other religion except Christianity is about saving yourself? It's about what you do to reach up to God 
Every other religion and cult in the world is about what you do, earning your way to God. Only Christianity is about what, what God has done for you. And that's why we talk about this so much, because, the, because this is a truth that is very easy for us to overlook. This is a truth that's easy to forget. Even, even Kim was saying, you know, I heard in first service, she's like, you know, you know I, I believe what you're, exactly what, we're, what you're saying, but I find in myself this need to try to be better or to work harder. There's something in me that says, I need to work harder. This is a truth that's easy to forget. It's easy to miss. Even the apostles here who had been been around Jesus this whole time, who were beginning to understand who he was, they missed this truth. Notice what it says. And he called the people to him and again said to them, hear me all of you and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him that can defile him, but the the things that come out of a person that defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you, you see that? Do you not understand the truth is what he's saying. Do you not see, right? Because this is obvious. Do you not see the truth here? Do you not see? Can you not see what's clear here? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from the outside that can defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all food to be clean. Praise the Lord for that, right? And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, etc., etc., etc. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Even Jesus' chosen twelve didn't understand the diagnosis at first. And because of that, they didn't understand the solution completely. In fact, we will see as we continue through Mark that it will take the death and burial and resurrection of Christ and him spending 40 days with him after he rose from the dead for them to understand the solution. Which, by the way, also points us to the truth that Jesus was sovereignly keeping these men saved even when they didn't understand what was going on. This is the point. This is just a little side note on the sovereignty of God and salvation. That God can keep us saved even when we get sideways in our theology. The truth is, is if these men struggle to understand this, this truth, then how much more than will we? And so that's why we talk about this all the time, by the way. That's why we explain this and explain the gospel as much as we do. We talk about this over and over again because, because if we don't understand the problem, we're not going to understand the solution. As we've said many times, if you don't know the diagnosis, then you're not going to take the medicine. Like I said, in my youth group, we talked about this several weeks, weeks back. I walked into the room and we were talking about you know, theology, our faith. And I said, what if somebody walked in this room right now and handed you a bunch of pills and says, take these right now. Would you take them? They're like, no, it's stupid. Why would I do that? I said, what if you went to the doctor and the doctor walks in the room and says, you have this rare disease that you're going to die from. You need to take these pills right now. Would you take them? They said, yes. I said, what's the difference? And then the light bulb goes on for one of the kids. He's like, well, because you understand what the problem is. If you don't know what you need, then you don't know what the solution is. If you don't know you need to be saved, you won't look for a savior. If you don't know that you can't save yourself, you'll try to save yourself. And that's why, for me, I get so frustrated when I listen to pastors and ministers who go, whose goal is always to make people feel better about themselves when they come to church on Sunday morning. And, and understand, please, hear me on this. I want you to feel better. <laughs> like when you walk in here and you got a heavy burden, I want you to walk out of here with a with you know feeling lighter. I want you to feel, you know, 
the love of God, certainly, and I certainly want you to walk out of here feeling like you can conquer the world you know, with God, and I want you to feel better about yourself and who you are, but understand that is not my job to make you feel better. It's not. My job is to tell you the truth. If that makes you feel good, then that's awesome. But if that makes you feel uncomfortable and convicted and even like upset, well, that's good too. Because my job is to tell you the truth. But there are pastors and ministers who don't want people to feel uncomfortable or convicted, and so they always will preach a feel-good motivational sermon. Right? And, th- and they don't talk about the hard stuff like sin or hell or the dreaded R word, right, right, like repentance. And they don't want to talk about the bad news about who we are. I've heard some say that, you know what, we're just, we're just, we're not bad people. We're just good people who make a few mistakes, which then leads them to talk about Jesus in a context that makes it seem like the point of our relationship with Christ is just to become a better person. You're already a good person. You just need to be a better person. And it's about being a better husband and a better wife and a better, better parent and a better child. And it's about being a better citizen and a better neighbor. You just need to be a little bit better. And then because of that, you know, the call to come to Jesus then is to come to Jesus and he'll make you feel better. Come to Jesus and he will fix all, your, all the things that are broken in your life. Come to Jesus and, and your life will just make more sense. Come to Jesus and learn from him and you'll be more just and loving and caring. Come to Jesus and he will make you, make the good you who makes mistakes a better person. And people come making a profession of faith, being told that if they'll just come forward at an altar call and they'll pray a scripted prayer, then they are forever part of the family of God, no matter what happens to them the rest of their life. And they come, and then they go to church looking to become better people, and they might even be getting getting plugged in to a small group, and their external life begins to change, and they feel like they're better people. But then life changes, or they get distracted by their hobbies, or they get bored with church, and they go back to their old lives believing that they're still good people who occasionally make mistakes. And because that's what the preacher said, right? But since they invited Jesus in their heart, they don't have anything to worry about. Because what you need from time to time is just a little more Jesus, a little more religion, a little more effort, a little bit more rule following, a little more time at church, and you're a better person again. I see it all the time. People living in open, deviant, unrepentant sin, thinking to themselves, yeah, yeah, I know, I know that I should get back to church because I'm making some mistakes, but, you know, it's okay. Jesus has got me. My heart tells me that he loves me, so it's going to be okay. That's what happens when you don't understand the problem. Our problem isn't isn't that we're good people who make mistakes occasionally. Our problem is we are natural-born rebels to God, and our hearts are deceitful and wicked and twisted. And though we were made in the image of God, that image is distorted by our sinful nature, and we are depraved, and we love our sin. Because let's face it, if you didn't love it, you wouldn't do it. We love to gossip because there's a lot to talk about. And we love how it feels when we know things that people don't know. We love to lust. That's why pornography is so prolific, even among Christians. We love to envy because there's always stuff that we'd like to have. And we love to quarrel because some people just need to be put in their place. We love to see people fail because, by golly, they deserve it. We love our sin. It's who we have always been. It's our nature. We're totally depraved. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not capable of doing good things because we are. 
because we're still made in the image of God that way. And it doesn't mean that we don't restrain ourselves from doing the from doing bad things. We don't, we don't restrain the evil that, 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 that we would want to do. By the grace of God, we are restrained. But think about this. If there was no consequences to you throat punching everyone who does you wrong, if you'd be honest with yourself, there'd be a lot of people in your life who are pretty choked up right now. Right? We don't always do the evil that we want to do in our hearts because God restrains us either through the law or through our consciences. But it's still in our hearts. And that's what Jesus is saying. The problem isn't that we are good people who need to be made better. The problem is we're dead people who need to be made alive. We're corrupt people who need a new nature. That's the problem. It's not out there, it's in here. You cannot fix this one on your own. That's why Jesus had to come and live a perfect life. That's why he had to suffer and die. Our problem requires a radical solution because our problem is a radical problem. Our problem isn't what we do, it's who we are. And the only way for us to be saved is for us to be changed. Now that we understand the diagnosis, what do we need then? What we need first and foremost is for Jesus to change our heart. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, that's what we've seen, right? Because there are only two groups of people. Those outside the kingdom and those inside the kingdom. Those that are unbelievers and those who are believers, And the difference between the two is never intelligence. It is never their religion. It is never their station in life. It's not even who they're related to. It's not even about the evidence that they see. The difference between the unbeliever and the believer is the condition of their heart. Those who don't believe have a hardened, corrupt heart. Those who believe have a changed heart, changed by God. And we know only God can change hearts. You can't change anyone else's heart. No one can change your heart, and you can't change your own. And so the first thing everyone needs is for Christ to change your heart. That's why we pray for people who don't believe. What do we pray? For God to change their heart. God, open their heart. God, prepare their heart. God, till the soil of their heart so the seed of your word will fall in. We pray over and over again for God to change their heart. And if you're someone who doesn't believe, that's what you pray. Is God changed my heart. And even if you do believe and you're struggling with sin, what do you pray? Lord, change my heart because I can't fix this. I can't do it differently. You need to change my heart. That's where it begins. Because that's where the problem is. Our hearts are corrupt. And out of our corrupt heart come all manner of evil. In fact, our corrupt heart can lead us to believe that we really believe in God when, and that we're saved when we, when, we, when we aren't. Don't believe me? What about all those people in the LDS church? They believe sincerely in the, you know, the, the, that they're saved. They believe that they believe in Jesus. The same thing with our Jehovah's Witnesses friends and, and the same people who deny the Trinity. And what about the Universalists who believe everyone's going to get saved? They believe a lot of the same things you believe, but they don't believe that, that there's a hell or condemnation or sin. And you ask them, why do you believe that you're going to be saved? Well, my heart tells me that. What about the person who goes to church and gets saved one time? spends some time in church and then falls away and lives the rest of their life like a demon doing everything that God calls evil and abominable. Their heart tells them that they're saved. Remember, our hearts are deceitful and they will lie to us. We need desperately for Christ to change our hearts. And then we need to respond to Christ. And the way that we respond is is do what Jesus said. We need to repent and believe the gospel. 
the evidence of our changed heart is that we will repent, turn from our sin, and turning from our sin, we will turn towards God and believe the gospel, which is the bad news about who we are and our sin and, and the wrath of God that hangs over our head. But it's also the good news that Jesus came to the earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross as payment for our sins and was resurrected as proof that sin and death have been conquered. We repent and we believe that gospel and trust that Christ we trust him with all of our changed heart depending on him to save us alone. We don't depend on our track record of church attendance. We don't depend on our ability to keep the rules. We don't depend on our ability to try harder. We don't depend on our ability to make God love us. We depend on trust in, rest in the fact that God already loves us and he made a way for us which is Jesus Christ and we depend and hope in him alone. We repent and believe in that. That is our hope. That is our solution. Now, there are some people who struggle with the notion of, the, of sovereignty, the sovereignty of God in salvation. The fact of the matter is the Bible's really clear about this, but some people just struggle and they're going to hold on to this idea that, that somehow, some way, right, that, that, that salvation is by my own choice. Fine. You still just need to understand that, that you need to be saved from your sin and that sin comes from your heart and that you need to repent and believe the gospel. That's your part. Now, there are some who struggle with the idea of repentance. I see it all the time. Some people say, well, repentance is just another way to say works righteousness because repenting is a work that you have to do. Well, besides the problem that John the Baptist and the apostles and Jesus himself calls people to repent over and over and over again is the fact that, that belief without repentance does not bring salvation. It doesn't. You see, repentance must accompany faith. But the problem is people see repentance the wrong way. See, repentance is not about me following some rules or, or, or trying not to sin anymore. Repentance is a change in my heart and my attitude towards sin and God. The God that I once hated, I now love. And the sin that I once loved, I now begin to hate. And sometimes repentance is like turning around a cruise ship. It takes time. But repentance is still necessary. That's why repentance is equated with, with changing of thinking, right? Because if, you tell, because, because if you tell someone that they can love God and desire him above all things and still love their sin and revel in it, right? The sin that God hates, that's a lie, right? To tell someone that all you have to do is give an intellectual assent to God without having to change your heart towards sin is a lie. Because if you don't love, because if you love your sin, and revel in it. If you, could, if you could still love sin and revel in it and love God at the same time, then sin's not a big deal, which means then Jesus didn't have to die. But Jesus had to die, and sin is a big deal. Repentance and faith, brothers and sisters, are two sides of the same coin. They are the evidence of the radical transformation in your heart. To understand the gospel is to understand that your hope is in Christ and turn to him and turning to him, you turn from your sin. They are the evidence, the radical transformation of your heart as Christ removes you, removes, removes from you your cold, dead heart of stone and puts in you a new living heart of flesh. And so now that you know that diagnosis, what do you do? Right. Well, if you're not a Christian, if you're someone who, who in the past made a profession of faith, but you know that your life's not been changed, then hear me. Today, turn and come to Christ. 
right now. Repent and believe the gospel. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, in Christ is forgiveness of your sins. Come to him, turn to him, repent and believe the gospel, grab on to him. Take all of your trust off of you and anything else that you've been trusting in and turn to Christ and trust in him alone and pray, Lord, change my heart and make me new. I believe the gospel and I repent of my sins. Come to Christ and he will save you. And if you're ready to do that, come see me afterwards or one of the deacons and we can talk to you about that. And for those who are Christians, then walk this out. Walk in repentance and faith. Because it's a continual process. We continue to repent and believe. We don't believe one time and then stop believing. We continue to believe. It's an ongoing thing. And then grow in your love and understanding of God. Spend time with him and get alone with him. Spend more time in the word and prayer and sell out for the mission that he's calling you to. Church, rise up. Do you understand that the the darkness of the problem reveals the greatness of God's love for you? the greatness of the the, the grace that God has given you. Once you understand the depravity and the darkness of your heart, you understand the overwhelming joy and love that's in Christ. God has an ocean of grace that he's pouring out on you. That should change you and cause you to want to go out into the world and declare this love and hope to the rest of your community and the world. He saved you to be a part of this mission, so sell out to be a part of that and continue to walk in that. Church, that's the holy calling we're called to. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.